Future CEOs, Episode 7. So you want to be a CEO? Sure, go ahead, read your ABCs of managing book. Or if you really want to be a CEO, then keep on listening to this Future CEOs podcast with your host, Gareth Armstrong, as he gets you up close and personal with real-world CEOs thought leaders, and industry experts to learn from their experiences and the insight and wisdom they've gained while leading in these challenging and ever-changing times. Are you ready? Then let's do this. Hi, I'm Gareth Armstrong. Welcome to Future CEOs. Today's conversation is with Preetesh Sevraj, who is the CEO of and Chief Innovation Analyst at Product of the Year South Africa. He brought these French-founded awards to South Africa in 2008 and has led the company to being the largest survey of product innovation on the African continent. I caught up with Pritesh at their rather busy offices earlier today. Here's the conversation. Pritesh Sevraj, CEO of Product of the Year and also Chief Innovation Analyst. Welcome to Future CEOs. Hi, and uh, thanks for having me on, Gareth. Just um, fill us in. What is a chief innovation analyst? I, I know it's one of those weird little titles that everyone wonders. Why is there a double barrel title? Yeah. Um, it's it's because of uh, the dual role that I play as well. So while I am CEO of Product of the Year South Africa, I also am responsible for analyzing some of the innovation that comes through to South Africa, but also on a global basis for our developing markets, trying to understand the innovation levels and what's happening and how we can apply it in different markets and how we can actually keep product of the year relevant to a different audience wherever we go. I like that because often people will ask, so what do you do? And the standard answer might be a title, oh, I'm a CEO. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not really telling me what you do. What do you do? So Chief Innovation Analyst tells me a little bit about what you actually do, which is really nice. And so Chief Innovation Analyst, I think, helps people really understand a bit more of the work we're doing. If you actually break it down, it's all we're doing is we're analyzing some of the great innovation that's coming through in this market and other markets as well. But Instead of it just being, let's analyze and leave it at that, we analyze and try and figure out an action plan as to what we can do with it. Is there an opportunity to take it to other places, or can we learn something else from it? Okay, well, that brings up a nice topic. Tell us about Product of the Year. So Product of the Year is a global organization. We've been around now for close to 30 years. We operate in about 40-odd markets. Essentially, all we really do is we go out there and we help consumers find the best new products that launched. I mean, how, how many of us have actually gone out and as we're driving here or as we go into stores, you have products and services that are saying new, new and improved, best ever. And it gets really confusing. So yeah. about, yeah, close to about 30 odd years ago in France, there was a gentleman named Christian Lebray who sat on the board of L'Oreal. And uh, he noticed the same thing was happening in France. And so what he did is he decided, let's form an organization to help consumers find the best new products and make it exciting. And, and that's, that's what Product of the Year really does. Okay, well, I must admit that... Um it sounds interesting, but not exciting. How do you make it exciting? <laughs> so, the, you're, you're right. I mean, research and innovation is not exciting to the consumer out there. Some of the ways that we do it is that we have quite a nice little red stamp which says voted product of the year. So we highlight to consumers the winning product. So there's a stamp of approval that consumers get to see out there. Okay. But in order to give that real excitement element, we have 
the largest gathering of marketers and people within the consumer goods industry that happens once a year. Okay. It's a huge event attended by a number of celebrities, a number of different people. The media attends it as well. And consumers are seeing this and they're seeing this fancy, glitzy event awarding the products that they support on a regular basis. Mm. So it lends to the excitement of it. It lends to consumers supporting the products that they really love out there. We were chatting before this and you said that product of the year has been in South Africa for six years, but then existed for how long? It's close to 30 years globally now. Okay. Yeah. The, the other markets that you are playing in, or product of the year, certainly? Wow, that's, that's a long list. I mean, we, we're everywhere from the USA to Canada to Brazil, the United Kingdom, France, Italy, Switzerland. We're in Japan. We're in Australia. We're in mm. India. Uh, we're in Turkey. So all, all these huge markets that are out there, product of the year is there, helping consumers. The key thing is our logo is translated to the language for those relevant markets mm. itself. But it's exactly the same methodology, exactly the same thinking, and exactly the same idea to really bring excitement to consumers finding the best products out there. Okay, lovely. But we're not really here to talk about product of the year. We're actually here to talk to you about you for our future CEOs community. We want to learn from you. We want to hear about your journey and just um, get some insight on how we can be better because of what uh, you're going to be sharing with us. How do you feel about that? It's interesting. I I think everyone has... Uh, a story, and, and like we said, right now we're sitting here, and I, I'm, I'm lucky to carry the CEO title. But I, I've met people who had no titles, people who could be the security guard outside our gate as well, where I've learned really interesting stories and life lessons from mm. them. So I think this is just the lessons you learn from a CEO are one part of a greater puzzle that you can go out there. Mm, okay, lovely. So uh, that brings us into our first question. What does it take to be a CEO? <laughs> In your I, view? I, a, a little bit of craziness, I think, as well, because I, <laughs> I think everyone wants, there's so many people out there who go, I want to be the CEO of my own company. And then you land in this role and you realize that really, in order to be here, other than having all that book knowledge and all those life experiences that have brought you you here, all you really need is this ability to hang on and never let go. Because once you get here, the forces that are out there that are pulling you apart from this are, are so strong. It's so easy to let go and say, I don't want to do this anymore. But it's really just that sheer determination and grit to hang on to it. I spoke to a very interesting individual over in the States, Lou Adler, Mm -hmm. and he works in the recruiting space. But what he said is that he he became a CEO when he was very young. I think he was 29 years old, Mm -hmm. his first appointment as CEO, and he said he actually ended up hating it. He, He wanted it because he had these ambitions, but when he got into that position, he realized that, that he actually didn't enjoy it at all. How have you found that movement into the CEO role? Well, I think one of the, the interesting things about my role is, and I, and I can relate to that, because the amount of stress that you suddenly take by holding on to this title, you suddenly have the success of an entire business that's there. But other than the business, you have people as well, and you're responsible for them. And, and I, I, I started productivity in South Africa when I was 26 years old. So it was kind of a weird time where suddenly globally, there's this global organization who says, now you're going to be a 26-year-old CEO, which is really, really strange. Mm. And you go through it and you sometimes, the first best thing you can do is not focus on the title, but focus on the work. Mm. And I think that's how I tackled it. I went into it and just focused on what needs to be done, how are we going to do it, what are the resources we need to build. And I went step by step. It wasn't until much later that I really had a chance to sit back. After a few years was when I actually sat back and went, wow, you know, it's, it's actually 
quite interesting, the work I'm doing and the title that I carry, and people actually are interested in the work that I'm doing. Mm. But until you've actually done the groundwork and until you've actually earned that title as CEO, regardless of what age you get it or regardless of when you actually start using that title, until you've actually done the work to prove you're a CEO, I, think, I don't think it's really worth anything. Mm. Oh, very good point. So let's talk a little bit about how you've earned it. Let's talk a little bit about your developmental journey, how you got to where you are, maybe a couple of early influences that shaped who you are today. Can you start at the beginning? Well, <laughs> well sure, that, that's a long story. So I, I'm, I'm one of these people who's a product of... Um, I always hate to bring this political side into it, but, but the reality is I grew up in a, in a very different South Africa from the one we live in today. Okay. Um, I grew up in an environment where I was used to security police going past and hiding under my grandparents' beds oh, really? uh, okay. as they went when curfews are going there. And suddenly realizing that, you know, being brainwashed into this idea that as an Indian male, your life journey either took you into two parts. Either you're going to be a doctor or either you're going to be a lawyer, okay. which I'm sure lots of people relate to. And then as I went through life and been exposed to different areas and different avenues and then having parents who exposed me to a lot of different thinking as well, realizing that the world was a lot bigger than, than what I believed it to be and my experiences from the past itself. Mm. But yeah, to go, went through a normal schooling through regular government schools, private schools weren't an option for me when I was young. They didn't exist. Oh, right. So we didn't have an option to go into a private school. And having an environment where I was exposed to people who had strong entrepreneurial spirit at every point, whether it was somebody in the school environment where you were having these little cake sales where it wasn't just for the fun of it, but because the school desperately needed the cash to mm. be able to, to buy something it needed, or within the community that I lived in where there were so many different entrepreneurs who were doing different things to support their families and learning those little lessons from them. Tell us just where you grew up. You mentioned growing up in a, in a community where there were vehicles driving around, but you didn't mention where. Oh, yes. So I grew up in Durban in an area called Clare Estate. Okay. And my neighbor was previously back then used to have different groupings that managed different areas. So for, for the Indian community, it was called the House of Delegates. And my neighbor was the Minister of Education okay. um, in the House of Delegates back then, which sounds fancy and huge. And, <laughs> and, he, and he had all the SAPS outside guarding him and stuff like that. But we were just pretty normal neighbors next to him. Um, my dad's a pretty normal guy. My, you know, my grandparents who we were with that back then were pretty normal people. But we were exposed to all of this as well in Clare Estate. Okay. As a young up-and-coming entrepreneur, maybe a young executive, what were some early influences, but then perhaps one or two mistakes that you also made that we can learn from? So there are going to be a, a lot of budding entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs who are in the startup phase of their businesses, and then some more advanced individuals who may be also in corporate environment who are wanting to learn and grow, and that's why they're listening to mm -hmm. this. They don't want to make mistakes. They certainly don't want to make maybe the same mistakes that you have made or that you can teach them about. So what were some mistakes that you made? Oh, the, the, the biggest mistake that I have to tell you is that, you know, we came from an environment where respect for elders was a really, really big thing. Mm. So the first company I worked for was Procter & Gamble, huge multinational. I was lucky they... They offered me a contract, a formal job contract in my second year of university. So signed, dusted. By the uh, way, what did you study? Uh, I studied archaeology. Okay, interesting. Which I started off studying a usual a BCom with majors in business information systems and information systems technology. Mm. And I was lucky enough to, to be offered this job 
after a long and lengthy process and, and, and all those internships and everything else that went into it, they offered me a job. And I went to them and um, one of the best things that I did, before even the mistakes, one of the best things I did is I realized that it's great to have a BCom degree, but then I just become another generic in this whole chain of this machine that's spewing out BCom graduates. Mm. And I was passionate about archaeology since I was a kid, archaeology and paleontology. And I said, you know, this is what I want to do. And, and they were a great company. And they went, you know, all they really care about is that I get a degree. Once I got my degree, my job was waiting for me. So oh, they, really? allowed okay. me, they allowed me to swap to archaeology. So I'm a classical archaeologist by training. L- let me just quickly jump in there at that point. Because this is what so many people seem to do and they don't realize that there is an option for a conversation. Mm-hmm. Now, so a lot of people just assume that, well, they're only looking for BCOMs. How did you get to a point where you were able to have that conversation with them about the switch from a BCOM to archaeology and paleontology? Well, it actually started when I, when I had a chance to interact with the HR department. And we had this face-to-face meetings. And they were really proud of the fact that they had these people from diverse backgrounds. So suddenly I started seeing somebody who had a chemistry background who was working in marketing. And I started thinking about this and went, but yeah, I'm doing the, the boring, normal thing, which is I'm doing the logical thing, tick the box. I'm yeah. doing the BCom, I'm going to get the marketing kind of qualification, and I'm going to work in marketing. So it opened up the dialogue to try and understand what was the needs for the organization. And the organization wanted to build a diverse workforce of people of different thinking mm. who are using that thinking to push the products that they had. And I think really what it needs to happen is every person who's out there needs to go out there and speak to the HR department, speak to the line managers as well and say, are there opportunities for the company to support me if I'm doing something other than the function I have? It's the same about the title. A lot of people, what do you do? I'm a CEO. But it doesn't tell you much about who you are and what's your background, as you mentioned earlier as well. And it goes the same in terms of the work you do. A lot of people think, I'm going to go into a certain role. What does that title say? And I need to study towards the title. No, that's what you need to achieve. But you can study something else to be able to execute that. Okay, lovely. Now, you either have sidestepped it or forgotten about it, but we're we're talking about some mistakes that you've made. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and and there were a lot of them. Let's not lie. I think I'm very proud to say I've made a lot of mistakes in my career getting here. You know, in Silicon Valley, they have the whole fail fast and fail as fast as you can kind of mentality. And without anyone telling me that, I had the ability to fail fast in a number of things. But one of the key things was that I lacked an understanding of the corporate environment I was going in. I brought a very cultural background and my understanding of where I've come from, where it was respect your elders, you know, you never ever talk, um, talk up against anyone if they're saying anything. Mm. And I brought this mentality into the corporate world. So I'd go into meetings and I'd have my bosses saying things, people who are coming from European, American, Asian markets, and they're looking to be challenged. And instead, I sat there and I became a yes man. And I okay. started agreeing. Earlier in my career, I learned, I learned how to be a good yes man. But the problem is, yes men don't get anywhere. And luckily, I had a great manager who had this ability to say, you know, um, he said I was too soft. Early days, he says, you know what, Pritesh, um, when, if, when I formally started working, he says, you know, you're too soft, but don't worry. By the time I'm done with you, I'm going to turn you into a, an insert expressive. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> and and that, that was his goal. So I don't, I don't think he's turned me into a harsh, crazy person. But what he taught me is in the real world, that you need to be strong enough to challenge people in power as well. It doesn't have to be just that a, be a yes man to everything. Mm. Everyone is finding out, regard, again, regardless of the title, everyone's learning. And 
everyone can learn, even from a junior person as well. On that point, though, there's, a, there's certainly a way to do that. So we're not now speaking to future CEOs and saying challenge people in power. Well, willy-nilly at least. No. <laughs> we're saying that you must develop the ability and confidence to challenge but there is a way to do it. So just give a, some of those who are listening some insight into the way, the process. Yeah, I think it's, it's this simple. If you're going to challenge someone and you have a hollow argument, they're going to come back and hit you really hard with that hollow argument and say there's absolutely new ground to, to stand on. Mm. What you really need to think about is if you're going to challenge someone, it's like debating. You're going to have a strong argument to back up everything you say. Yeah, something gonna, substantive. Exactly. Have something substantial where you're going to say, this is my point and this is the reasons why I back it up. And then you start a conversation back and forth where both parties can discuss it and try and find the best ground. But if you're just going to go and challenge for the sake of being challenging and being the difficult one in the organization, then you're going to be seen as the one who doesn't have the organization's interest at heart and who's somebody who shouldn't really be there. So really what you're going to do is challenge, but challenge with a strong argument that's of value to the organization, not to just be somebody who's there to just create disruption. Perfect. Thank you. In your experience, what don't leadership or management books teach about being a CEO? They don't teach, and I'm sure everyone says it, but they don't teach you passion. The thing is, they, they give you all this linear knowledge, and mm. they tell you, this is what you need to do, tick the box to get it. But even if somebody's able to learn all of this, the real-world application is very different from your theoretical knowledge. So I think the real passion that you need in order to succeed and to be able to do this, and the love for your brand, the love for your product, the love for your service, is not something you can learn from books. This is something that you develop internally and then take to the rest of the world. You've mentioned love for the brand, love for the work that you do. Is that your definition of, of passion, or could you expand a definition of passion for us? Yeah, I think it's, that's a, on a very top level. Your passion starts, like I said, with the love for the brand and the work that you do. But as you look at the multiple layers, it's kind of like that argument we are discussing right now. If you just say, I love my brand, it means absolutely nothing. Why mm. do you love it? You love it because your brand's making a difference somewhere in the world. So you can say you love it, and what is the difference that it's making? If you're in a, a big hospital group, let's say like a net care, for example, mm -hmm. and you're working there, and you say, I love my brand. Why do you love it? You love it because you're helping people, you're healing sick people, you're making the world better. But in the same time, you could be at a Unilever doing Handy Andy, which sounds like the least exciting brand in the world, and mm. you could love it because you have the ability to influence the lives of millions of people out there, and you feel that you're making a difference. So love really comes from this understanding that the work that you're doing has some sort of meaning in the greater scheme of things, and it's not just being done for the sake of it. Mm. Okay, very nice. Your biggest leadership or CEO light bulb moment? Well, uh, I... <laughs> I think the, the biggest thing that I really realize is this is not easy. Mm. I meet so many people on a regular basis who have business ideas and they go, we've got this fantastic idea, we want to do this and we're, we've, we've done all of this. And, and I think from experience what we've learned is that a lot of people don't realize it's not easy. It takes a lot of effort. Recently I, I spoke at a conference as well and, and somebody said, why don't we have enough technology companies in the, in the country? Is it that people don't really go out and invest in technology? And one of the things that we chatted about was, and I said, we do have enough. We do have a lot of people investing in technology companies, but we don't follow through on it. We don't mm. stick to it as well. And in order to stick to it, whether it's, it's in technology, whether it's in a, in a business like ours, or whether it's in a service-related business, you've got to realize it's a lot of hard work and it's difficult and you need to have that passion to just stay the course. 
Someone mentioned to me that it's really about providing something that is consistent over a long period of time until you've paid your school fees. And at that point, that tipping point, that's when everything begins to really come together. And sometimes a tipping point can be six months down the line, sometimes it can be five years down the line. Yeah, Would you agree with that? I agree. It depends on the business. The reality is that you're learning. A lot of people think, I'm going to get into this business. I can now go and spend a couple of thousand rands printing a few business cards with the word CEO. It means absolutely nothing, like we said earlier. It's, mm. it's, it's really, this is where you're getting your education. And that tipping point happens once you've gained enough education to suddenly realize, I'm no longer just a person who's, who needs to learn more. Now I'm able to actually add value to the work that I'm doing. You're still going to be learning different scenarios, but your ability to add value is what imp- what's important out there. From a career point of view, I think they re- refer to it as career equity. Mm-hmm. The point where you get where you've got enough substance that you can really make an impact. Yes, because once you've added enough value to yourself, then you can really go out there and make a difference. We don't realize, a lot. I've, I've also met young entrepreneurs as well, or even young professionals who get into jobs, get into companies. The young entrepreneurs get in and go, I want to start making millions of rands immediately. Mm. The, the young professionals get into a career and go, this company's not paying me enough. Why have they not paid me enough? And what we don't realize is, whether you've started a company or whether you're working for a company, you're actually learning quite a bit at that stage. And you need to use that time to learn enough so that you're able to go out there and get that career equity and add value to this world that we live in. Barbara Mallinson, she is the CEO and the founder of Obami. Now, mm-hmm. Obami is getting headlines all around the, the world. It's an online learning platform. And the one thing that she said that she wished she hadn't done was jump out of the corporate environment so quickly because of the learning that you're referring to. Yes. In the corporate environment... Corporates spend millions of rands every single year training the people. Why do they train them? Train because they know they're going to learn this and add value to the organization itself. I read a stat once that said that when a company hires someone, they don't really get their return on investment until after three years of okay. employment. Lovely. Um, and that's, that's really interesting for someone to think of because in your early stages of your career, the company is investing so much in on training and understanding and getting you to learn a lot of the stuff that, you're, that you need to use within that environment. Mm. No, very nice. Please finish the sentence. As CEO, my highest priority every day is to ensure... My people are happy. Your people are happy. Okay, expand a little bit on that. It's really important to make sure that the people that you work with on a daily basis are happy in the work that we do. No one can be happy 100% of the time. But again, on an average, over a long period of time, making sure that the relationships you have are strong and good. Not everyone's going to stay forever. People are going to leave, and that's normal. So what's really important is to make sure that when people come here on a daily basis, that they feel happy in some way to be in this environment and to be doing the work that we're doing. If they feel that, then they're better able to take care of the business and add value to this business as well. What is the best advice you've ever received? Add value to yourself first before you add value to the situation you're in. And I, and I know it sounds like a strange one, it's a long one, but think about it different. From a business context, If you're not trying to continuously improve yourself, how can you actually share anything in your business context? And a personal context, if you're not trying to be a better person, how can you be a better person within a family grouping as well? So the advice I got early on in my career really was that in everything that we do, just try and make yourself a better person by adding things that make you whole. And a lot of people, again, going back to career, will be... Let me go out and study a certain thing. If I go out and study an MBA, I'll, I'll add value to myself. Mm. Sure you will. But the reality is if you suddenly have a passion for gardening 
And if you learn that and you spend time doing it and it makes you better as a whole complete human being, you can still add value to yourself as a marketer or as somebody who's in some other other business environment. Very, very nice. Very important point that. Okay, so that, that's part of the advice that you've received. So then what is one habit that you would attribute your success to? If you could pin it down onto one habit, what would that one habit be? Ordered chaos. I'm the example of ordered chaos. Okay. We live in a chaotic, disruptive world. But even within all this chaos and, and disruption, we, we're trying to find our place in it. And one of the things we don't realize is we tend to focus on the small, narrow idea of just focusing on the business or on the situation that we're in. And the world tends towards chaos. If this building that we're in is left as is, mm-hmm. it will crumble and fall within a couple of years. If we don't take care of our bodies, their systems, they fall and they, they disrupt and they dis- they're destroyed after a few years. And the same thing happens in terms of our life that I need to think. I think one of the things I need to do is there's always chaos that comes in. And you need to find that kind of harmony. So I embrace the chaos that comes every day. Okay. I love it. I love it when we have issues or things we need to sort out that was unexpected. Why? Because somewhere within that, you tend to find that there's a path for you to succeed and do better at what mm. you're doing. Okay. That was very well qualified. We can all listen again. <laughs> <laughs> no, very good. Thank you. So you've spoken about creating some kind of order out of chaos and enjoying that chaos. One or two tips on how you actually do that? Well, the, the key thing is, you know, you don't want to get stuck into firefighting on a, on a daily basis itself. Mm. But you're always going to have things that never go as planned. And you have two ways of looking at it. And I think it starts with a mindset shift first. A lot of people go, this has happened, there's absolutely no way we can cope with it, and we're done for. Or you can change your mindset and say, this has happened, and it's an opportunity to, to change and do something different. And I think that's what happens. It happens in your mind, in the brain first. It's this chemical reaction where those metabolic pathways that mm-hmm. are neurological pathways that have developed say that no matter what's happening, we have the ability to cope with this and deal with this and progress forward. Thank you. We are slowly but surely coming to the end of our conversation. There's a couple more questions. Uh, thank you for the value that you're adding. Let's see if you can add a little bit more before we part company. What should future CEOs be studying over and above the formal qualifications that are out there in the market. So whether it's an undergraduate degree or something advanced like an MBA, beyond that, what should they be studying? I think anything other than a formalized degree in, in the job that they're doing. As I've told you, I'm a, I'm a classical archaeologist and I'm working as a CEO of a company that's involved in research and marketing and branding. Uh, and from experience, what I found is the people who are out there to, who think differently are the ones who've got qualifications outside of the space that they're working. Reality is, if you study what you're going to be working in, all you're doing is you're cloning, you're becoming a clone of another person in that industry. Mm. If you go study anything else, it doesn't matter, just go study anything else other than what you're working in right now. Opportunities are really seen, or many opportunities are are certainly seen in the periphery, the the peripheral issues that you're dealing with on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And as you say, if there is a different thought process or a different interest that you have, maybe you can see what's going on on those peripheral issues or in those peripheral issues? It's all about lateral thinking. It's about thinking of things differently as well. We, we so get focused on becoming clones in the, in the environments that we are that we forget that real solutions and real difference come from the people with that disruptive mindset. And if you want to build a disruptive mindset, how can you do it by, by being involved in, and being insular and only in the space that you're involved in? Mm. Go out and experience something different. Mm, very nice. 
So what book would you recommend all future CEOs read today? The 48 Laws of Power. Say it again, The 48 Laws, 48 laws of Power okay. by, by Robert Greene. Okay. It's such a fascinating book because this is one of those crazy books that's out there that goes against the trend in, in everything. Mm. Uh, the other books which are telling you out there how to, um, you know, how to work with your managers and stuff. This book tells you how to actually manage those relationships with people in power. Mm. So your direct line manager or the CEO of the company that you're involved in. But it also gives you a framework for you to think of things differently. And what I like is it challenges the existing thought that's in the marketplace mm. in terms of way things need to be done. Uh, one or two points that you've taken from that book? Power is a very personal thing as well, and you shouldn't give it away that easily. A lot of people give away their power in different situations, and they don't realize it. And that's from your body language. Uh, you give away your power from your voice and the mm. way you actually sound. And a lot of people don't realize that you can walk into a meeting, look like a strong, powerful person, dress the right part, but your voice will give you away. Mm. So that I find really important that people need to remember in their presentations that they're doing. Sounds like a really, really good book uh, for everyone to be reading. I love it. You should. I recommend it for everyone. And it comes, and this is the beauty of the author and the way he thinks, it comes in two different sides. You've got the, the big multi multiple page sizes where you can actually go in and and really go in depth into the material but mm. if you want to read it really really quickly he's got a smaller pocket version that you can stick in your pocket and just read if you could go back in time and speak to the 20 year old ambitious young you what counsel would you give yourself don't be in such a hurry and i think that's a weird thing is that 20 years old i was in such a hurry to do everything that i forgot that i'm missing out on learning opportunities right now it's great to be future thinking and thinking where I want to go and what I want to do, but without understanding the value that you're gaining right now, you can lose out a lot. So when I was 20 years old, I obviously wanted to be a CEO and I wanted to run my own company, but I forgot that a title does not make you a CEO. Mm. It's what you learn now basically gives you the bed and the foundation that you need to be able to do that. What I hear you saying is that a house is really built brick by brick every day. That's right. And a lot of people forget that is and if you do not have a strong, same with houses, if you do not have a strong foundation, it's going to crumble. What makes you think that you're any different as a person? If you do not build a strong foundation for yourself in terms of your knowledge and your experience and your relationships and contacts out there in the marketplace, what makes you think that you can suddenly go out there and be a success? Pritesh, it's been a fascinating conversation and I can't believe how quickly time has run. Oh. Is there any last comment that you'd like to leave us with before we close this conversation? Um, yes, I think for future CEOs out there, don't underestimate the power of financials. I know it's a boring one to give people as a last word, but I found so many people who want to be CEOs and they want to start companies and they find great products, great services, and, and they calculate how much a product they're going to make, how much a profit they're going to make by selling one of them, but they forget to do an overall cash flow projection. It's boring, but that boring foundation is what will give you a success. Don't forget the financials before you start anything. Pritesh Sevraj, CEO and Chief Innovation Analyst at Product of the Year. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for all your insights, sharing your experiences, and we wish you all the best. And thank you for having me on, and all the best to the show. It's fantastic. I love it. If you would like to make contact with Pritesh, you can find his contact details and the contact details of Product of the Year South Africa on the summary page on our website. I'm Gareth Armstrong, and I'll be with you again tomorrow. Thanks for joining us today on Future CEOs, and we hope you're feeling inspired and ready to take action. 
head over to future-ceos.com for show summaries, recaps, articles, and other resources aimed at fast-tracking your rise to CEO status. To make it even easier for you, simply sign up for our weekly newsletter, and we'll keep you up to date on all interviews, special guest appearances, new developments, and more.